Please open your Bibles today to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. I want to preach on the entirety of John, chapter 2, and let me read the chapter at this time. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to them, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. He said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers and disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover over of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold the doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then... His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But... Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Almighty God, we pray that you illumine this passage of Scripture to our hearts and give us your insight and wisdom. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, I want to preach on this entire passage of Scripture. And to do that, I want to bring a summary of some basic points. Today I want to talk about the comparisons 
and the contrast between these two passages. Yes, I read this entire chapter, but you did notice that the first passage deals with the wine miracle. The second passage deals with the temple where he overturns the tables. I want to bring up the comparisons and the contrast between these two passages. And then finally, I want to talk about the conclusion, which is mentioned at the end of chapter 2. Let me mention three comparisons to point out concerning these two paragraphs. First of all, notice that there's a third day theme with both of these passages. Look at verse 1. In verse 1, it says, The third day, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And then, in the second passage of Scripture, after Jesus says, Destroy this temple, he says, I will rebuild it in three days. That's the, the second passage where the third day theme is mentioned. And of course, John wants you to know that the Jews misunderstood what Jesus was saying. He was not talking about the physical temple there. He was talking about his body, speaking of his death and resurrection. So there's a third day theme here. One commentator says this, that the purpose of this third day theme is to bind these two paragraphs together so that they interpret one another. The wine miracle on the third day thus points to the resurrection miracle on the third day. This third day theme, I would also add, is a, the number three in the Bible indicates a type, a type of judgment or vindication of the righteous. Judgment can be two things. It, could be, it can vindicate the righteous or it can judge or give a verdict against evil. That's the point of the number three. And this leads me to my second comparison because in both of these passages, Jesus is going to confront an old creation item or an old covenant issue. This is the second comparison that Jesus confronts or brings judgment, a type of judgment, to an old covenant issue or an old creation item. Notice this. In the first paragraph concerning the the miraculous water into wine miracle, Jesus confronts the Jewish purification ritual. Did you notice that very briefly in verse 6, it talks about the six water pots of stone that are big. They're 20 or 30 gallons each. But what was the purpose of these water pots? It was a Jewish purification ritual. These water pots were not for drinking water. They would get the water and somehow wash themselves, purify themselves. And this was not to get the germs off. Okay, they didn't have that degree of science. This was simply for a ceremonial purification ritual as a Jew. Now, the Gospel of Mark talks about a lot of these types of washings that the Jews went through. In Mark chapter 7, verse 3, it says, The Pharisees and all the Jews... They do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. And Mark continues, he says, they come from the marketplace and they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things that they have received. They hold on to like the washing of cups and pictures and copper vessels and couches. Again, this is not necessarily to get the dirt off and clean and things like that. It's to be holy. It's to be 
a pure Jew and distinguish themselves from the Gentile, the unclean people downstream, that kind of thing. That's the cultural matrix that's going on here um, where there's a time of Judaism. And here Jesus is actually confronting that issue right now as he changes this drinking, excuse me, this washing water into drinking wine. Another commentator says this uh, concerning Jesus' miracle concerning this washing water. He says, a strict Pharisee would have regarded the changing of, of this water into wine as disrespect toward their ritual tradition. It's a way of casting off their Jewish law. That's what Jesus is doing when he's changing this particular type of water in this particular vessels into wine. He is confronting and going uh, and putting a halt, really, to this Jewish purification ritual. He's saying, thus no more. This is outdated. That's the first paragraph. The second paragraph is very similar. And in fact, there's a similarity that John uses in both paragraphs. It's the phrase of the Jews. It's the purification ritual of the Jews in verse 6. But also look at verse 13. Jesus is going to go and it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. That's important because Jesus is upsetting the Jewish purification ritual and he's upsetting the Jewish festival of Passover as he overturns the tables in the temple. So there is a similarity in both of these paragraphs where Jesus is confronting those issues. Notice that whenever Jesus does confront the old covenant temple and cleanse it, it's quite ironic because the temple is the place of cleansing. The temple is the place of washing. The priests would get the water, wash themselves, get the sacrifice, and the people would be forgiven, right? And be cleansed. But what really needs to be cleansed is the temple itself. So there's an irony with the, uh, the, the stone pots that are for cleansing, but also it's the temple actually that needs to be cleansing. This whole entire environment needs cleansing, and Jesus is outdating those old laws. The third comparison I want to point out between these two passages is that the ones who are in a high position in both stories, in both narratives, they don't get the point. In fact, they misunderstand or misinterpret what is happening. First of all, in the wine miracle passage, the master of the feast, he, he's in charge. He's the one in a high position. And he doesn't realize that Jesus has performed a miracle. He doesn't get it in the passage. He thinks the groom is the one who actually saved the best wine for last. John wants you to see his misinterpretation, his misunderstanding. Also, in the second passage, whenever the Pharisees hear about Jesus destroying the temple and raising it up in three days, they misunderstand what Jesus is saying. And in fact, the way Jesus talks is almost as if Jesus doesn't want to explain the truth to them, as if the Pharisees don't even deserve to know the truth. But either way, 
The ones in high positions, they misunderstand the point of what's happening. And that's a theme you're going to see continually later in the Gospel of John. It's the ones who are low, the ones who are outcast, the ones who are down and out. They're the ones who get it. They're the ones who understand the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the one performing the miracles and he is miraculous. To make, this, to make an application of all this, you can see that the light of Jesus Christ confronts two types of darkness. He confronts the darkness of immaturity or things that should be outdated. For example, Jewish purification laws were good for a time. A lot of it comes from the laws of Moses. Uh, all the, the regulations that were rooted in the Bible were good. There were some things that the Pharisees added that were not good, but whatever was biblical was good. But Jesus is outdating that. He's saying that's a time of darkness and the light comes in and he's saying, thus no more. You should apply that to your life in this way. For example, when you graduate from high school, your youth is outdated. Now you're going into adulthood. There's past issues or past errors of your life or habits of your life that are outdated. Jesus comes into your life and says, put that to a halt. You need new wine. You need something else. Move on past that, whatever that may be in your life. So that's a type of darkness and how Jesus' light outdates it. There's another, and that's what you see in the wine passage. He's outdating those, those good purification things. They're outdated. But then there's a type of darkness that Jesus confronts which is absolutely evil and corrupt. And that's the sin within the temple. Um, He confronts that, overturns our table, and he's going to create a new temple that's based upon his resurrected body. This is an outworking of John chapter 1, verse 5, where it says that the light shines into the darkness and the darkness does not comprehend it. You need to understand there's two types of darkness in the Bible. There's a darkness that is as good in the sense that it's just looking forward to the light to come, like on day one. But then there's a darkness that is evil, like the corruption in the temple, and it needs to be completely removed with a new temple based upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Moving next, we've seen comparisons in this passage. Let's look at some contrast in these two passages. These two paragraphs, here's the major contrast. The first paragraph is the first event or a first event in Jesus' ministry. The second paragraph is a final event in Jesus' ministry. The point is this. John is not writing right now in chronological order. Uh, When you study the other Gospels, when did Jesus overturn the tables and kick out the money changers and all that? That was right before his crucifixion, at the end of his earthly ministry. Well, John is structuring his gospel account here so that you see a first event and a a final event of Jesus' ministry side by side, right near one another. Why? Why does John do this? Why does he place this first and final event right there together? And the answer is this, because John wants you to see that Jesus Christ, from the beginning of his ministry, was single-minded on his mission of death and resurrection. Because both of these paragraphs 
One will emphasize his death or as a prototype and the other his resurrection. And this is in Jesus' mind. In the first paragraph, Jesus is single-minded upon his death. And this subject matter comes up whenever Mary brings up the issue of the lack of wine. In fact, whenever Mary brings up the lack of wine, when she brings up the wine subject, what is Jesus thinking about? He's not thinking about wine. He's thinking about his own blood. She says this, they have no wine. Jesus says, what does, this, what does, you, what does your concern have to do with me? <clears throat> My hour has not yet come. You see, Mary is talking about wine, but Jesus is talking about his blood. Why? Because the hour that is predetermined, that is predestined of when his blood will spill, that's what he's thinking about. You'll also notice concerning this, John wants you to think about what the master of the feast says at the end of this narrative. The master of the feast tells the groom, you saved the best wine for last. Think of that. That's exactly how the gospel of John is structured. The first part of John is drinking wine. Wine that you put in your bottle, in your glass and drink. The last part of John, the gospel of John, is blood wine. It's the wine, it's the blood that comes from Jesus's body. That's why what the master of the feast says right here is a summary of the entire gospel of John. The best wine comes last. The wine of Jesus's blood. In John chapter 19, verse 34, it says, One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came up, or came out, came out of Jesus' body. This fits, everything I'm saying fits very well with what John says later, or Jesus says in chapter 6, verse 54, Jesus says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So yes, just like it is in chapter two, so it is for the rest of the gospel of John. The best wine, the real wine comes last because it's the wine of Jesus's blood. Another thing to notice as a side comment about this first miracle of water into wine and even a prototype of the cross to come is that Jesus rescues the host from dishonor with his miracle. Imagine this. You have a wedding feast, a big wedding party. Everybody's celebrating. And then you, as the host, run out of wine. How embarrassing would that be? Well, Jesus makes up for the difference. Jesus provides the wine and the groom receives the benefits of the applause or the congratulations or however it's meant to interpret. The man, the groom is credited as providing enough wine for the party. Whereas all along, it was Jesus's wine that he provided. You can see that in doing this, Jesus rescues this man from shame, 
public shame of not having enough wine for the party. In the same way, what does Jesus do in his death? His blood wine. His blood wine of forgiveness of sins, it removes our guilt. His blood wine gives us the glory of salvation. It removes our shame. So what happens in this miracle here is a prototype of exactly how Jesus will treat us, His people, with His blood on the cross. Now, that's how the first paragraph prototypes the death of Jesus Christ. But remember I said that Jesus is also single-minded on His resurrection. That's what's mentioned in after the cleansing of the temple. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it up. And John quickly says that they didn't understand what he was saying. He was speaking about his body. And so in verse 22, when he had risen from, his, from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said to them, said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had said. So this helps explain why both paragraphs are side by side because at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he is single-minded, focused on his death and resurrection. And to apply this to you, what this means is, is that Jesus' death was not accidental. It was very intentional. He desired to die. He desired to fulfill his calling. Yes, he struggled with it in Gethsemane, but he overcame the struggle and desired and fulfilled his calling. In fact, it was so intentional that Jesus Christ will say in John chapter 10, verse 18, nobody takes my life from me. I give my life of my own free will. I have the authority to give my life and I have the authority to take my life back again. The reason why it's important to understand that Jesus' death was intentional because it's about love. Jesus Christ willfully thought about you and said, I am going to die for you. I am going to rescue you. I came from heaven for you. That's why John wants you to understand the divine origin or, of Jesus Christ, how he is God in chapter 1. And what everything that God does is on time, in his time. Especially the, the, the sacrifice of Christ and the spilling of his blood. Now, lastly, what I want to do is talk about the conclusion of this Chapter, you'll notice that, let me reread it, just two verses. In chapter 2, it says that he, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. There's a double usage of the word belief. That word belie- commit is actually belief. In other words, you can put it this way. Jesus did not believe his believers. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jesus Christ is in an environment where he cannot trust. He cannot trust anyone around him. There's a, a sense of isolation. You think about that. What if you lived in a world where you knew there was nobody you could trust? That right there is a feeling of Loneliness, isolation, 
individualism that no human in their right mind can really handle. But Jesus is in that particular type of case. He is, this is, this is indicating his divine nature. He really does know the hearts of men and he knows he cannot trust them. As John says, he knew what was in man. Now here's what's good. That there's a big difference between the life of Jesus and the life of his church. Jesus suffered in such a way that he knew he could trust no one. But he did that so that his, play, his church can be a place of trust. And his, tr- his church can be a place of forgiveness and peace. It reminds me of James chapter 5, verse 16, where it says, Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The, the fervent, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The reason why you can do that is because the church is a place and a community of trust, of forgiveness, of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the difference between the life of Jesus and the life of of the church. He suffered isolation. He suffered all that in his humanity so that he could build a new temple. A new temple based upon his body. A new family where the family of God can come together and help carry one another's burdens. So when you see how Jesus does not believe his his believers You don't see that as what you should do, but see that as a contrast. It's what Jesus did for you so that he can create the community, the family, and the church where there is trust, there is love, there is compassion, and there's that unity of the Holy Spirit that Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians. But also the same angle, the fact that Jesus Christ knows he can't believe or trust anybody around him helps explain something about the Gospel of John. There is one person he can trust, and that's his Father. In the Gospel of John, there's a lot of dialogue within the Trinity. Meaning this, Jesus is talking about the Father and the Spirit over and over and over again. To summarize it, you can say this, Jesus Christ is loyal to the Lord God His Father. Yes, Jesus Christ is God the Son, the Son of God. But in that relationship with the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ is primarily concerned about pleasing His Father in heaven. And His Father sent Him to die. And so He is primarily concerned about obeying His Father's will, pleasing Him, and that's all that primarily concerns Him, concerning His duty. This is where you can bring a comparison between you and Jesus. Though we have trust in the church, community, love, and compassion, and all that among ourselves, individually, your primary loyalty is to the Lord. Just like Jesus' primary, loyal, primary loyalty throughout his life was to his, to his Father in heaven to do his Father's will. So there's that similarity that you can appreciate with Jesus But also there's that contrast that you cannot apply to yourself because Jesus does some things for you that you could never do. At the same time, Jesus does create an example 
of what we want to try to do on some things. Like, for example, being loyal to the Lord above all else. So these two passages are put together. These two paragraphs are put together that you have a foretaste, taste, of that wine, that blood wine that's coming later in the Gospel of John. And you have a foretaste of that resurrection, that new temple that's going to be built upon the foundation of Jesus' resurrected body. Because you as the church, you're the new temple of God. And even now you have the wine of the Lord's Supper symbolizing the blood of Jesus Christ that you drink. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for the goodness of your gospel, the single-mindedness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fact that He came to rescue us from our sins and even rescue creation. We give you thanks, Lord, that you bring light after every form of darkness, whether it be the darkness of immaturity or the darkness of evil, the light of Christ will always overcome. In His name we pray. Amen.